opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard who, left are in the you know, ascendancy I, I, within, the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right, right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position, hard left, the 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 You're listening to Real Politic with me, Jack Frayne Reed, and I'm joined again by a returning Real Politic guest back for her second rodeo. It's Joanna Romero. Hey, hello. Really great to have you back again, Joanna. And of course, listeners of the show will know that Joanna joined us previously to talk about the political situation in Brazil just after Bolsonaro won the presidential election. Joanna's a journalist, and because I I really stumbled with the introduction last time, I'll let her kind of like (laughs) explain who she is. (laughs) Okay. I am a freelance journalist based in London. I think to some of the themes we're going to talk about today, uh, it is apt for me to plug in my own podcast (laughs) or my own show. So I host a show within the Politics Theory Other podcast called uh, Red Hacks, and it's about left-wing journalists working in, you know, mostly neoliberal media landscape, Mm. which is basically an excuse for me to invite my mates over for a chat. And it's good, by the way. Like, you Ah, should all listen to it. Thank you. It's funny that I I was just thinking as you were introducing the last time I was here that I always come on Realpolitik to speak about the most serious of issues. (laughs) Um, So, I don't know. I really don't want to be the token serious one, but, you know... There are worse things to be in this world. Yeah, well, if you want, we can do a, a kind of frivolous and light-hearted episode at some juncture, you know, about about issues of, of no substance whatsoever. Definitely. I'm up for that. <laughs> that could be very fun. But no, I mean, I think that you are well-suited to this because you have experience as a professional journalist and I think you can provide insights that... Some people in our, shall we say, our inner circle may may not be able to, but I can't. I don't have experience as a professional journalist. You haven't introduced the topic of the discussion today. Yeah, yet. Your... yeah. I, I was I was kind of. <laughs> we're, we're building up the suspense here. Exactly. I was leading into it. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about something that is a long term concern of real politic. It goes back to the two episodes that we did about a year ago with Juliet J and Hugh Lemmy, where we talked about, specifically, in fact, Juliet's experiences writing for The New Statesman, in particular about how she felt kind of forced out by a culture of endemic transphobia, but about the press and the liberal press and the way that it's a very 
kind of establishment heavy sort of closed shop in a way back then now we're talking about that today about the culture of the media and how that establishment mentality reaches across both the conservative and liberal wings of the British press and we are doing this prompted by the recent shitstorm over George Eaton's interview in the New Statesman so there you go, bringing it back to the episodes of Juliet, with the then government advisor and, you know, seasoned conservative intellectual and also racist bigot Roger Scruton and a couple of other things that have happened in the media, specifically, again, the liberal press over the past few months that speak to its culture and practices. So, Joanna... Should we talk about the British media then? Let's do that. Fuck, where do we start? Well, why don't you introduce what happened to any listener who might strangely not be au fait with the scandal? The thing is, the New Statesman have published, like, so many follow-up pieces now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was at the end of April. I keep on thinking it was on the 27th. The 27th is my birthday, and I don't think it was. I know, because, like, 10th of April. 10th of April? There you go. Cameron's resignation was the death knell of the Conservative Party. Much earlier than I thought, actually. I think it's because the scandal actually kicked off a bit later, so... Yeah, oh, fucking hell, it's been trundling on for an entire month. I mean, it kind of had been done and dusted, things had calmed down, but then the Daily Mail or the Spectator, I can't remember which one, found the tapes, or there were leaked tapes Mm. of the interview... Because originally the New Statesman only published the script on the tapes, and then there was a whole new rehashing of it. Oh, Why really? don't you, you introduce it to the tape? Yeah, I think it's on YouTube to put a sort of provisor here to this whole conversation. I would have said that if you ask, you know, a normal human being outside of the Westminster bubble and political nerdery bubble, nobody will know about this. Nobody will give a shit about whether or not this so-called public intellectual that actually very few average Britons will know of or have heard of. What he has and hasn't said before, what he has and hasn't said in this interview by the New Statesman, and in fact, who even, you know, no offense to George, who's a friend, but or even who George Eaton is, for that matter. What? And so, I thought it was a household name. Household Brent name. George. It's all they speak about in, in um, the Labour heartlands. Or... Well, yeah, the, the, the Labour heartlands of Twitter, perhaps, not the <laughs> Labour heartlands of Yorkshire, but, you know. And again, like, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing that the media, and I would include myself in that remit, although I can't even compare myself to George's profile, but all I'm saying is that I don't think any of us should be household names in that sense. We should be brought to account by our own constituencies, if need to be. But what I'm trying to highlight is that this particular scandal isn't a scandal. It's completely fabricated, I I would suggest, by right-wing rhetoric, by the establishment. And I think in the conversation, we'll try to unpack why that's the case. And it's of complete irrelevance to everyone else, basically. And so I I think we should keep these things into perspective, because even though it's my opinion, and I hope we'll end up on that note and on what to do as far as the left and as far as left-wing journalists and media and commentators are concerned about this i very much hope that at the end of the day we're the only ones who have to do something about it everyone else can just move on with their lives and continue dealing with the spectator and its utter irrelevance as they did their lives before this i mean i would hope so i think that its relevance 
is in as much as there's a kind of worldview that a lot of people at The Spectator possess, and you could say is kind of incorporated into their editorial line, that kind of is shared by a lot of people at places like the New Statesman or The Guardian. Maybe not the people, you know, doing the grunt work effectively, but the people at the top, the powers that be, and that gives this worldview, this quite conservative worldview, an inordinate prominence in the British cultural debate. And this is <laughs> most likely, like you said earlier, referencing a conversation with your friend, that the British media effectively functions as an instrument of the bourgeoisie. But, I mean, mm. I think that there's something about the way that these kind of stories, these faux scandals develop, that does have a kind of wider import when it comes to just the general tone of political debate in British politics. Yeah, I mean, again, it begs the question of whether British politics in the end doesn't really just happen in a bubble. <laughs> and then the average British person or resident in this country only hears about politics when there is an election or a referendum going on. I mean, perhaps now we're, we're all a bit more hyper aware because of the ongoing soap opera that is Brexit. But otherwise, it probably is something that is, is very far away from normal human life. And I think actually that is a sad part because Absolutely. I think politics should be part and parcel of people's lives and they should feel empowered to be part of the discourse. What I was trying to highlight is that this quote unquote scandal is not. But just to sort of backtrack or go back to the question of what happened, you know, so George Eaton, deputy editor of the New Statesman, does this interview with Roger Scruton, a lecturer philosophy, is it what he's a lecturer of? He's written books on many things. Including... On political theory, for sure, because I have one of his books on political theory. Yeah, and on philosophy, art, and various other things. Peter Willby, in one of the follow-up pieces published by the New Statesman to the Scruton piece, a piece called The Scruton Affair, writes that Scruton has had a distinguished career in his 75 years, including a period as NS wine columnist. Which Scruton personally cited in a Spectator piece as a reason why he should have been treated with more respect by... Because he, I, I've just checked online and he, he is a visiting professor at Oxford. Yeah, um, he's written so... more than 50 books on philosophy, conservatism, music, art, religion, animal rights, hunting, sexual desire. <laughs> oh God, I would hate to think what... He what is basically a old white man, so he has many opinions <laughs> about many things, I guess. <laughs> some of which he has some ideas about and others which he just got paid to write about. I mean, importantly, I think, to say is that before George Eaton conducted this interview, Roger Scruton had a form already of doing particularly, let's call them in a political correct term, controversial interviews or public addresses about a series of topics. I think two come to mind. One is race in China, which is one of the issues that the interview approached and became one of the sources of the scandal. I'll mention that why in a minute. But, but the other one being sexual desire and homosexuality, in which actually Scruton goes on to basically as he's explaining this book that he has written and I can't remember the name of the book anymore but it is on sexual desire he basically explains lesbianism as an exasperation and I'm, I'm using my own words here but an exasperation yeah. with the male or and now I'm quoting him explaining it in an interview with Spike interestingly enough oh well of all places yeah exactly and he says publication you know, granting someone yeah. like Scrooge weird 
left wing we're using terms very loosely <laughs> yeah. but, okay. but i imagine he probably got an easier treatment for uh, that particular <coughs> left-wing publication that he did sure, at the New States. Yeah, he did. And so much so that he says, in explaining how homosexuality is, in a way, somehow incomprehensible to him, he describes it as, he can understand why women turn to lesbianism because of, you know, women's need to fix a man down. And so often, this, this I'm quoting here, so women's need to fix a man down is a quote from what he says. I.e., in other words, their exasperation with shit men leads them to lesbianism on the other hand for gay men it's this obsession with the phallus uh that somehow he can't really get his mind around it's just retrograde shit uh, there's a quote from the telegraph in 2007 in the Wilby piece where scruton says although homosexuality has been normalized it is not normal well yeah like it, it's just this continuous spewing of absolutely homophobic views and the same can be said about other opinions he has written about again like gender and about race and about different nationalities so i would have suggested at least a level of neo-colonialism cultural imperialism whatever it is that he has you know i mean roger scruton and i don't think he's unique in that sense i think it should be added has this sort of inherited british imperialist position of we are wise and grand and logical and everything that falls outside of the purview of my opinions is madness and it's abnormal and it's unfortunately a kind of rhetoric that is still very much prevalent across the board in terms of a sort of older generation of the British establishment. And I think that dismissing it is like, oh, they're old and they're about to die, which is what a lot of the left has done vis-a-vis these characters, mostly mm. white males, I should say. It's just ridiculous because these mostly men, again, are barely older than our parents. You know, they probably are younger than our grandparents in many cases, yeah. if we think about people of my age, so the late 20s, early 30s. And so are your parents really like that? And if so, did you not question yourself? I mean, this is just one generation behind. We're not talking about people who fought World War Two, you know? Yeah. In other words, what I'm trying to highlight is that Scruton is not unique in holding this opinion. What is, I think, shocking is that we haven't really, as far as British mainstream debate is concerned, confronted these opinions. And if anything, we just humor them or enable them or let them pass. Or actively um, rewarded yeah, for, yeah. for holding those opinions. I mean, I think that a crucial part of this story is that at the time of the publication of the Eton Scruton interview, Scruton was working as a housing advisor for government minister James Brokenshire. So he was an actual employee of the British government in a position of genuine influence. And not without scandal already in the sense that he had already made some comments on housing and homelessness. And so had Brokenshire for that matter that were quite outrageous in their backwardness. And, And in any case, the fact that he has held these quite noble opinions before in in public sphere did make him a target of critique rightly so from including center ground opinion as a government advisor as someone paid by the taxpayer to do a, a governmental job and in fact if anything the big outroar about the interview with george did not necessarily come interestingly enough from the fact that george put him on the spot although obviously if he hadn't the subsequent events wouldn't have happened and called him out for what he was saying but the fact that he got subsequently fired so roger scruton got fired from his position as an advisor to james rokenshire based on the opinions expressed in this interview and the pressure that i put on the government or that particular department to sack him i almost feel like suggesting that being that scruton has gone through so many other 
shitty opinions that he has put out. And he didn't get fired before that. I wonder how much the department wasn't just looking for an excuse to fire him in the first place. <laughs> but that said, the fact that he did get fired subsequently or as a consequence of this interview was what really enraged Douglas Murray at The Spectator and The Spectator at large and the series of other right-wing national publications. I mean, I think it's interesting to look at what in particular Scruton said that got him sacked because mm-hmm. it seems to me like he sat down with an interviewer who he should possibly have known was at the very least coming from a sort of centre-left place, the publication he works for, and basically espoused a load of racist opinions and otherwise offensive ones to this person, and then got very, very upset when there were consequences for these opinions. Well, I think that again says something about how he has been treated or had been treated up until that point, i.e. that he would say this mad shit and nobody would bat an eye and would just go on as normal. And the fact that it was framed in a different way, as it should have been all along, i.e. confronting, calling him out for these racist opinions or homophobic opinions or whatever else, or misogynistic as well, that it only shocked him in 2019 is what's really, well, just flabbergasting, really. So just to run through the things that he said. Yeah, go on, go on, go on. He said, and again, I'm using the Wilby piece as a sort of summary of this, even though I have criticisms of the Wilby piece that I will get to in a minute. Scruton told George that it was nonsense to accuse Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, adding, the Hungarians were extremely alarmed by the sudden invasion of huge tribes of Muslims. He claimed that anybody who doesn't think there's a Soros empire in Hungary hasn't observed the facts. And yeah, in fact, Scruton has history in this regard. Yeah, we've been forgetting the Islamophobia, haven't we? Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Out Um, of the list of misdemeanors. Yeah, speaking in Hungary in 2016, he said many of the Budapest intelligentsia are Jewish and form part of the extensive networks around the Soros Empire, adding that indigenous anti-Semitism still plays a part in Hungarian society and politics. So, I mean, I... That is true. That might well be true, but that that could be said about Britain as well, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I think that Peter Wilby has added that quote in to say, look, look, he's not all bad, like, in his defence. But again, I'll get to my criticisms of a Wilby piece in a minute. Now, in that paragraph, another historic comment by Scruton is cited. In a book in 2017, he described... Islamophobia as a propaganda word, and again in his interview of George Eaton he elaborated on those views, calling Islamophobia again a propaganda word invented by the Muslim Brotherhood in order to stop discussion of a major issue. And again, this seems consistent with the kind of extreme anti-Islam views that he's expressed before. Doesn't he then say something about the Muslim Brotherhood being an offshoot? The reason why we didn't want to deal with, was it Egypt? Because Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is an offshoot of Hamas or something like that. Doesn't he go into some wild comments like that at one point or another? um, I'm not sure if he does in this interview. Maybe I've um, been reading Oh, no, possibly he does in the full transcript. No, that seems to be the one reference of the Muslim Brotherhood in there but no he could possibly elaborate on that stuff at something some else yeah, yeah um, I think I was reading some exchanges between George yeah. and Peter Hitchens and Peter Hitchens <laughs> referring back to this is the uh, refer, I mean like talk <laughs> about you know like you know old white men with with big opinions <laughs> uh, but you know 
when you got guys like like Peter Hitchens in your corner, not not Christopher, but also Christopher, well, he's still alive. Uh, you know, you're you're not racist and reactionary at all. That's for, that's for sure. Um, the funny thing about Peter Hitchens, I have to say, and I'm sure that in some respects that could be probably be said about Roger Scruton. I don't know. I never met Roger Scruton, and I've met Peter Hitchens, and um, he was very nice to me. Very nice. He invited me out for a drink. And I, yeah, even though we, we were debating, so we were at this debate up in New York Union, at the New York Union, and it was it was a feisty debate, and he brought it all, mm. uh, and in the end, we tied, so I was quite pleased with myself that I was able to <laughs> cool. tie, because I was terrified that people would defeat me and just fall for his controversial charms, and afterwards, he, he was sort of really warm, and this is the problem with these characters in as much as it's easy to demonize them when you just look at the opinion and rightly so to be fair but it's also very easy to fall for their charms as people who are just very what's the word physically harmless old white men you know i mean say if your new statesman editor jason cowley or perhaps former new statesman editor peter Wilby, you may consider these people to be your peers you may have met mm. them at social events you know you may have read their writing for a number of decades yeah you probably had a little drink with him which i didn't end up doing yeah and you oh, thought that's delightful well precisely and possibly however much you appreciate what he's brought to your publication you may think that, that a plucky little upstart like george eaton is kind of stepping out of his remit i mean uh, i find i find this whole idea which actually douglas murray has espoused often about you know george eaton being a young journalist looking for a hatch job to make his name in the industry like George Eaton has worked for the New Statesman 10 years you know like he's not in many places he would be considered and I think he I mean he is in the New Statesman he's a deputy editor a senior member of the staff and I think therein lies the problem but I don't know if you wanted to go into more nonsense of, of that scrutiny said during the interview before we go into that well I think that the most contention about any of the supposedly, and let's be real, definitely quite controversial, or in George's words, outrageous Scruton quotes, was over his one about Chinese people, which was, each Chinese person is kind of a replica of the next one. And um, now, now, yes, on the surface, that seems very bad, but there seems to be some kind of agreement from Peter Wilby in his piece for Scruton Affair, from Zoe Williams in a piece criticising Scruton and defending Eaton in The Guardian, that perhaps George did mischaracterise Scruton somewhat on that? I'm not sure. I think that at the end of the day, if you're someone who has 50 years, whatever it is, of experience in public speaking, to say that, what is it again? What's the quote? Chinese people. Each Chinese person is, person is a kind of replica, replica of the next of, one. Next, yeah, it's just, I mean, what the fuck? You know, it's like, I'm sorry, but if you're such, I mean, unless you're been now diagnosed with some sort of dementia, there is no excuse for someone who has that kind of CV to go yeah. and say something like that in an interview or in any sphere for that matter. Mm. So I don't know under which, you know, like the problem with these things, and I haven't listened to the actual tapes, by the way, I've read the transcript and I've read the piece and I've read lots of pieces about it. And I've heard some podcasts about it too. So I've done a bit of research, but I haven't actually listened to the tapes because a lot of this also, and I'm talking now from one experience, the tone with which people say things, the way in which people say it with their body language as well, all of that could have informed George on the meaning of what Roger Scruton was saying at that particular point with that particular sentence. 
And that can also mean that perhaps George misread it. Fair enough. But at the end of the day, I suspect that the underlying notion should be, excuse me, if Mr. Scruton has 50 years, what is it that the editor at the New Statesman, what is his name, but Peter Willoughby calls him an illustrious career. Is that what he says? What he calls yeah, it? Yeah, some shit like that. Yeah. Um, you know, like someone with that kind of pedigree surely should know by now that they should not be saying things like every Chinese person is a replica of the next. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere. In he just watched context. Blade Runner and the concept was just really yeah. deep in his mind. I mean, unless you go into a serious explanation on how you actually mean that Confucianism is about the selflessness of the individual and the morphing into the one communal consciousness or some shit like that. Even then, to be fair, like, phrase it better. But, you know, like, this man is a fucking professor, has several exposed. You know what I mean? Like, what? He says of the Chinese... We invent robots, and they are them. That's in the full paragraph. I mean, even as poetry, that would be bullshit. You know, like, (laughs) this is not good in any interpretation whatsoever. So, for me, as far as that, you know, sort of, oh, George misinterpreted what he meant, it just doesn't pass. Mm. It doesn't pass because someone with that kind of experience and alleged great mind wouldn't say something like that if they were that intelligent and, you know, inspiring and thought-provoking. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So I think those were the main comments that sparked the controversy and provoked his sacking. What I think we should now move on to is how George Eaton himself reacted. Mm. Now, the Prosecco scandal. Yeah, so George has been on the podcast before and both of us are friendly with him. But, I mean, I should make it clear, he's not requested that we discuss this at all. No, absolutely. We're here only because we feel, like, very passionately about all this rather than necessarily about George. Yeah, he has no part in this whatsoever, Mr. Cowley, if you're listening. But I basically, I was listening to the All the Best podcast, Mm. Matt Zarb-Cousin and Max Shanley, and they spoke about this briefly, and I thought they made some good points, and I thought that they could do with some elaborating on. Mm. So, (laughs) the point that Max made on the All the Best podcast was that I think Matt said something like, if I were George, I'd just up and leave. I'd just be like, no, I'm out, sorry. But Max said, well, you know, he's actually quite well placed at the New Statesman. Mm. Having somebody like that who's interested in radical ideas and gives the dominant strain of politics in the Labour Party a fair shot, unlike the vast majority of other journalists. You know, Stephen Bush is very fair with the way he covers Corbynism and so on, but he is at heart a kind of quite hardline Blairite, I think, not to impugn his journalistic abilities at all. But, you know, recently, George has brought quite a lot to the New Statesman. He's Mm. brought some radical perspectives into it and been responsible for left-wing hires, such as Hetty O'Brien and Grace Blakely. Uh, Yes, Hetty is an online editor and Grace is the economics commentator. Uh, Since George got appointed co-deputy editor, by the way, I should say that it's a job share. But Mm. James Meadway, former advisor to Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, has also started writing very frequently for the New Statesman, not necessarily... 
under George's realm, but certainly with a lot of conversations with George, from what I know, Paul Mason has also become a frequent columnist at the New Statesman. So there's this panoply of interesting left-wing voices. And in fact, I should, I should just provide this by saying that if people are interested in the whole conversation about whether the New Statesman is on the left or not, and George himself, or on the far left versus the center left, the melty left, let's call it, you know, in this new brave world of Corbynism and post-Corbynism, the third episode of Red Hacks of the show that I host mm. is actually an interview with George. And yeah, we spent quite a bit of time talking about this, about what is it that changed for George vis-a-vis his, his politics that made him go from being a signatory to the Houston Manifesto to doing interviews with Flavio Dushek and, and I was and I was so Parker. glad that you brought up the Houston Manifesto. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I, think it's, I, I don't think it's important to a talk about these things and mm. see like there's an example of putting someone on the spot in a way. But that person being able to argue it through. And I, as a journalist, was satisfied. And it's up to the listener to decide whether they're satisfied with the explanation or not. But that's the job of a journalist. And obviously, George knows it too. And he's, he's a good journalist. So anyway, that was an interesting conversation about the political nature and journey of the new statesman and of George himself. As far as this particular interview with Scruton and the consequences thereof, in particular, a certain piece written in the Daily Mail about how this is just another sign of the kind of Marxist or Corbynist takeover taking place at the New Statesman. It's absolutely ridiculous. For me, and I started paying a lot more attention to George, I must say, when I started noticing this shift in interest, at least, or at least space. I did wonder why was it that the New Statesman, this is at some point early last year, maybe at the end of 20. 2017, where people start, you know, sort of sometimes a bit jokingly, sometimes a bit more seriously calling him Red George or Woke George. I don't know who started that. I don't know if it might have been you for all I know, Jack. Uh, I, I, I think I, I saw people calling him Woke George and I, I was like, I prefer Red George. So I did my best to popularize that. <laughs> in any case, like I kind of felt, okay, this is an interesting trajectory. And why is it that this is happening? Both for George on a personal level as a journalist and as a, someone interested in politics, but also for the New Statesman to give that space to these opinions. George did a really long, and this is actually more recently or last year, between last year and this year, he wrote a really long piece about Rosa Luxemburg on the anniversary of her death, I believe. He did a, a said like a really long interview with Slavoj Žižek, a really long interview with Yanis Varoufakis, a really long interview with John Landsman, and a really long interview with Roger Scruton. You know, and um, published some. I assume it was George who commissioned them. It was a couple of pieces by Andrew Murray the Unite and Corbyn advisor, one of which in which he talked about efforts by the deep state to undermine Corbyn. And I think that piece was one of the most egregious examples of what a lot of people on the centre see as a genuine deeply personally felt betrayal from George. I mean, you you see some people on Twitter talking about how he's abused his position, which as far as I can see, they mean by publishing articles by people who are more left-wing than that they like. The thing I see cited again and again is when the New Statesman published that. I'm not going to defend it. It was terrible. That Who Will Speak for Liberal Britain piece a couple of months before the general election and and there were a bunch of people protested their (laughs) their offices and said kind of like we need 50 pages of pro-Corbyn material to compensate for the 50 
60 pages of anti-Corbyn material in your next issue. And, and so they brought Andrew Murray. Uh, yeah, <laughs> perhaps that did uh, change his, uh, his way of thinking. Who knows? It could have I mean, been persuasive. This is, this is the thing I thought. So my analysis, even before getting to talk to George, even getting to know George personally, when I first saw this turn of interest in the new statesman at large, and this is before George became deputy editor, should we said, I thought the reason why the new statesman had the new interest in left wing rhetoric was because no one else in the sort of more mainstream publications was. Mm. The Guardian had de facto abandoned any kind of other than Owen Jones and, and Don Foster and a couple of other more occasional columnists that fundamentally abandoned any sort of interesting left-wing discourse as yeah, far as they, opinion is concerned. And they certainly don't have any leftists beyond, I would say, Jonathan Shannon at The Guardian Longreads who are in editorial positions. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, not people who would at least have a genuine interest in publishing pieces by people who are talking to the novelty in terms of British politics. You know, you can call it Corbynism, you can call it a new wave of social democrats or democratic socialists. You know, what exactly is the difference between the two is debatable. But in any case, yeah. this novelty and, and in fact, the polarization. But there is plenty of people covering what fucking Nigel Farage is saying. There's yeah. not a lot of people covering or commenting or trying to to debunk or to analyze or to praise for that matter importantly to praise i would have said with my own bias what is happening on the left it's this sort of complete silence and so i just thought jason cowley who's the editor of the new statesman very shrewdly thought well we're going to target that market and we're i assume so yeah know, we're just gonna we're just gonna cover that and i thought well good on you then mate perfect and for george i came to find and again you know i, I really am not trying to self-promote here but in red hacks we talk about this i ended up finding out that it was a genuine interest that he kind of always had in the background and and suddenly where there was a space to indulge in it he did I was honestly astonished when he agreed to appear on our podcast. We bumped into him in a McDonald's and and, and I was like, oh, do you want to sit with us? What and... a fictitious uh, interview then, like just po- in, yeah. in McDonald's. Okay. Did you and, actually uh, just approach him in a McDonald's going like, hey, you're George Eaton. Would you like to be on Real Politics? <laughs> More or less. That, that, that was pretty much how it went. I think that the centrists who are angry at this betrayal from George, they go back to that image of him standing looking, I suppose, sort of disapproving at the anti-New Statesman protesters outside their office. And I've seen a couple of tweets from, you know, like the biggest melts on Twitter saying, oh, he looked so effortlessly cool standing there watching watching these protesters. And I actually asked him about that when I saw him at Bristol Transformed. And he was like, well, I'm, I'm a journalist. I wanted to see what was happening. So um, there you go. It's the like inside curiosity track on... immediately being, you know, somehow branded as melt heroes. Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just a bit like, what, that, what a stupid protest in the first place. I was like, well, I wasn't on it. I just did an hour and a half of podcast called. Who organized it? rude things oh god knows it, it would be like you know awl momentum or something like you know the chris williamson wing of the party oh sorry he's not in the party so there was this kind of political journey at the new statesman and it seemed to be red george spearheading it be it going on real politics be it publishing andrew murray on the deep state alienating the people who thought him so effortlessly cool but i thought this was just self-evidently quite a good thing but it seems there's a bit of pushback in the new statesman ranks and that seemed to come to a head after he posed with that bottle of champagne well yeah i think 
from what I remember, someone, I don't know if it was Fraser Nelson or someone else at The Spectator, or certainly The Spectator at large, picked that up. And in general, the establishment mainstream media or the more to the right publications picked that up as the ultimate sign of betrayal or of some sort of braggadocious attitude. This illustrious man just got fired and and there's this young, as, as, as someone else, what was it saying? Like, uh, I think it was Douglas Murray saying, you know, this young, what was it they said? I don't remember the words, but whatever. It was like ambitious young journalist um, <laughs> celebrating with champagne or Prosecco, whatever it was. I mean, George apologized for that Instagram post. Yeah. I mean, he was doing it in personal capacity anyway, and it's not his George Eaton at the New Statesman Instagram account. Um, yeah, <laughs> that would be we... great if it was. That would have Imagine. been a fucking baller move. I'm very pleased that I had the chance to like it on his Facebook page before he took it down. We can always go like, oh, you know, that was a bit rash. Maybe you shouldn't have done that, whatever. But at the end of the day, the amount of right-wing commentators or writers who have done way worse and who have not been fired, or, I mean, in this case, George hasn't been fired, but certainly has been the target of all this commotion. There's an internal investigation. There's an internal investigation, yeah, yeah, there is. But fuck? (laughs) Well, yeah, I know, exactly. The fact that there is an internal investigation... I mean, what exactly does that even mean? The tapes are public. The transcript is public. Are they going to interview? I don't know. By hypnosis or something? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Where did he purchase the champagne? Yeah. We need a fucking receipt. In any case, I just think that it's such a double standard. Because had it been something on the right, the left complain about, they would get a slap on the hand and be told to go on gardening leave for a couple of weeks. And they'd be back writing immediately more horrendous racist content than they had before. And I, I can think of yeah. a series of columnists for the Daily Mail or even the Spectator for that matter. Or, um, I mean, been... closer to home, was there ever an internal investigation about the stuff that Helen Lewis wrote and commissioned on trans rights? Yeah, and... pre- precisely, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I know that Helen is now about to leave the New Statesman to go and work for, is it The Nation or, I don't know. The Atlantic, one the of Atlantic the ones that's got really transphobic writers. So um, it's all good. For a good amount of money, I'm sure. But, you know, yeah, it just sort of feels like such a massive double standard and I would obviously also celebrate if a racist got fired from a governmental job that I'm paying for as a taxpayer so sometimes I honestly find myself with very little to say about this except that and this is what I think underpins the whole conversation all the time I think what happened with the Scruton interview particularly being that it was conducted by the deputy editor of the New Statesman was that all of a sudden, the establishment and the media side of the establishment realized, oh, fuck, we are losing ground to a space mm. that was previously ours. And this could become an example of a model for what happens to the media in this country, which is, yeah. and we were mentioning this before we started recording, Owen Jones's piece in The Guardian talking about British media's institutional racism. The media in this country, for all its goods, which some of them it does have, and it's better than a lot of other places, can also be incredibly elitist, incredibly reactionary, and incredibly racist. Yes, it can. 
can. And yeah. in, in many, many ways, the mainstream is fundamentally quite backward and reactionary. And certainly increasingly so in the last 10 years, I would suggest. So yes, to suggest that somehow, otherwise, it'd be ridiculous. And to be punished for saying that is all the more so. Yeah. So what I think really happened here is that suddenly the powers that are within the media picked up that there is something changing, that there was a crack there to their foolproof system of bigoted opinion and something needed to be done about it. And so I think George is being used as a cautionary tale is like, look, yeah. if you dare to say something about how we conduct the way we talk and, and we conduct our conversations in our public debate, then you'll be put into under an investigation. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's happens. the latest front in the rights culture war. You know, he made an example of one of their guys, so by God, they're going to make an example of him. And I think what it comes down to is that he kind of violated the unwritten rules of the club. Mm. Like, it's self-evidently a good I, thing that I he think... got Roger Scruton sacked. Like, he did a public fucking service. And you read what Peter Wilby wrote in his Scruton Affair piece. He says, The NS has no partisan political interest in bringing Scruton down. Well, why the fuck not? Because politics isn't just a bunch of men in suits sitting around and discuss, you know, chewing over the ideas like Cowley probably does, Wilby maybe does, when they go for a drink with Roger Scruton. It impacts people's lives and having a fucking mm. bigot like Roger Scruton in a position of influence as a respected public intellectual and at that point a member of the government is an outrageous situation Precisely. that they should be thanking George for writing. They talk about how Cowley has tried to broaden the magazine's appeal beyond its traditional Labour heartlands, which seems to mean with the Conservative establishment, from what mm. I can see. Yeah. Jason Cowley's NS is not in the business of doing hatchet jobs. Um, and th th I think their next paragraph is very telling, because maybe he should do some more. Cowley <laughs> has, for instance, interviewed Theresa May and Nigel Farage without mm. complaint from either. Now, what does I that say? Yeah, what exactly. Say? I remember reading that Theresa May article, which was just after she became Prime Minister, and thinking, my God, this is the most pathetic load of gullible soft soap drivel. It does not surprise me to learn that there was no complaint about that interview. The Farage one, I'm sure, is the same because Cowley regularly indulges these kind of socially conservative blue labour ideas because of his condescending view about the working class, who I don't think, just going from, you know, his public persona he really knows much about. And finally, Wilby says, I wrote a long profile of the then Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre, again without complaint. And we can also talk again, about, how, yeah. about the new statesman's chumminess with the Daily Mail under yeah. the editorship of Jason Cowley. You're commenting on this piece from Wilby that my reaction is literally like, you okay, hun? You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is all great. We interviewed all these people with quite reactionary ideas and there was never a complaint from them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is the statesman, wasn't the new statesman founded by the fucking Fabians? Jesus Christ, you know? Very quickly, uh, before I'll, I'll let you, you express your own thoughts, because I've been on quite, uh, I've been on one here, effectively. But um, I mean, when Nick Davis published his excellent book, Flat Earth News, which you may have read at some point, 
point, but it's a very good book on the British media and its culture and its systemic biases. And it goes through and it talks about one by one all the papers, except for, I think, The Guardian. But it talks about The Observer and their craven support for the Iraq war. But yeah, the Daily Mail don't really get a very good rap in Flat Earth News, especially Paul Dacre himself. Probably a much more negative portrayal than he got in Peter Wilby's profile of him in The New Statesman. Anyway, when that came out, The New Statesman and The Daily Mail jointly published what I think is an outrageous hatchet job on Nick Davis for Mm. daring to, again, violate the rules of the club. So when Wilby says Jason Cowley's NS is not in the business of doing hatchet jobs, I don't think that's true, because if it's somebody that Jason Cowley wants to go for, then they certainly do. Mm. I think in particular the betrayal of this of this club as you mentioned or the sort of betraying the rules of the club is all the more pertinent because they came from white men from men who in these other men's views should know the rules should be complacent to the rules and and should be big advocates of the rules these are the people who should inherit the club when we die you know and instead they close the door behind them or leave it open whatever it is but sort of just Tell them, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to comply to this bullshit in whatever minor way, you know, because at the end of the day, I keep saying this and I maybe it's a bit of a dull analogy, but all that George did with that interview was be, you know, that child that cried, the king is naked. You know, like in the emperor's new clothes or the emperor's naked. Uh, So it's nothing. It was all opinions that were already out there in the public. It's just that nobody had the guts or the intelligence to decide and say, sorry, but this is absolutely unacceptable. And as you say, that was the big betrayal that was like, how dare you do this? And then on top of it, you know, I guess there must have already been some disgruntlement over the fact that the New Statesman was now doing front page pieces about Marxist economists like Grace Blakely, a young, very intelligent woman who was shut up many old white men in the mainstream media, certainly in the BBC in the last few months. Uh, absolutely. So, and then how, he was very famous for that. And how was she and Hetty O'Brien described by an unnamed, quote-unquote, senior yeah. New Statesman source in that Daily Mail piece as left-wing children? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the other thing to say is that if we think about, you know, let's imagine ourselves in... 2022 or whatever when the next general elections take place and we see ourselves with a Corbyn government if we think that the establishment media or the mainstream media as it stands today is going to just lie down and continue inviting Grace Blakely Ash Sarker Aaron Bastani whoever or even Owen Jones for that matter to go mm. on primetime shows and be commentators and completely demolish the opinions of people like Piers Morgan and Andrew Neil and so on. I think we have another thing coming. You know, I think the establishment will close ranks. Then they will definitely close ranks and they will definitely leave Cocktig completely on, on the curb. <laughs> Uh, close <laughs> ranks and say absolutely fucking not yeah. we're just going to put our own people discussing this and be a couple of different shades of shit uh, <laughs> I mean like I was just you know I like to listen to as a journalist I think it's healthy for us to listen to all kinds of opinions and so I went and listened to the spectators podcast about this and the people I, who, I did today I listened to their cocktail episode and, and the people <laughs> they invited to comment on this was Douglas Murray who has been writing all these pieces against George Eaton and against the New Statesman and a guy from The Economist whose name I now forget who was 
constantly basically just echoing what Douglas Murray was saying. So it's a yeah. bit like, I'm sorry, is this meant to be a debate or just a pylon? You know, and this supposedly from, again, for all the virtual signaling from the spectator against the new statesman, for a publication that is meant to be upholding freedom of speech and balanced opinion. Which I yeah, don't, but... it's about putting George in his place so that other leftists don't get any ideas. Exactly, absolutely. And whatever happens next, and this is, you know, for whoever is listening to this, particularly if they, if they work in any kind of media, smaller positions or larger positions, certainly if they're in larger positions, I hope you're listening to me. I mean, this is a time to be organized because if we lose this particular smaller squirmish slash battle, we as the left and certainly as left wing journalists or journalists who still believe in speaking truth to power will be losing a hell of a lot of ground that was gained for us. And this I that the kudos have to be given to George Eaton by George Eaton, particularly in the New States. Yeah. And I think I was speaking to other colleagues from other publications who I obviously won't name for their own safety, whatever might happen, who have constantly been expressing their displeasure and discomfort over what happened, right? Saying that yeah. George did the right thing. This was a good piece. I am shocked and in part at times terrified by what the consequences are of in the way in which Jason Cowley and the management of the New Statesman reacted to it. Because in my opinion, it is utter responsibility of an editor to stand by its staff. Yeah, And not absolutely. what Jason did, which is basically flush George down the drain or, or sell him out quite quickly. And, you know, we have to think, I'm pretty sure that Jason read that piece before it got published. It's not yeah. as if the editor doesn't go through the final copy or the final proofs of, of, of the magazine before it goes to print. And if he doesn't, then somebody needs to question Jason Cowley's capacity to be the editor of him. Of him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he maybe he didn't. Magazine. Maybe he took his eye off the ball for a bit and thought that things would be, you know, just running fine in his absence. And I... then he, he looked back and the new statesman had just moved that little bit to the left. I and he just, that... oh my God. I find that rather, I don't think that's possible because obviously Jason <laughs> did, did sign off the hiring of Grace, but likely for sure. And he's overseen all the pieces that she has written. And I think there was already a lot of buzz in the industry, in our sector, and certainly in certain circles about how there was some displeasure from certain wings inside of the New Statesman about the political direction that those pieces were taking, much like there was with Andrew Murray's piece, actually. And so I find it hard to believe that Jason Cowley at any point, or certainly for any lengthier amount of time, took his eye off the ball and then suddenly went like, oh my goodness, what the hell happened here? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You so know, then it does feel and... really cynical, doesn't it? It yeah. feels like he knew it was it going on yes. and he threw George under the bus anyway. Absolutely. I think what happened there was for Jason again, and if we think back to the theory of he's just a shrewd businessman, well, clearly not so shrewd, because if he was really shrewd, he would have stuck with his constituency. And if anything, this piece and the whole scandal could have earned him a lot of new readers. But anyway, what I think happened there was, you know, and Jason has been at the New Statesman for over 10 years as well, given his age and all that, I suspect he's probably thinking of in the short term retiring. And so I think what happened there was he shut his pants and thought, fuck, I've now missed my chance at, I don't know, some sort of consultancy position uh, <laughs> yeah. with, with, you know, with a spectator, whatever, you know, like, and, and again, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, I, I say all these things with great regard for what he had done, at least in the last few months or years for the New Statesman, because I don't think it would have happened if he hadn't allowed it to happen. So credit where credit's due, even if the credit mm. is a cynical one of looking at a certain market and thinking, I'm going to go for that. I'm far more the disappointed as someone who has written for the New 
statesman even that the editor has taken this position as far as its own staff is concerned you know yeah i mean i you know i have said some very um not nice things about jason cowley in the past but you know i kind of thought well maybe you know he is open to a change of direction a bit and now you know it feels like he's confirmed all my worst prejudices about him and it's resulted in the usual thing of twitter will find all your terrible opinions when you do a terrible thing so somebody's found this awful piece he wrote for the observer when he was over there a few years ago which is all about how africa has failed to live up to the, the rainbow dream envisioned by cecil rhodes uh, and, i, I uh, didn't know about that yeah he commiserates about how you know although they're more equal in the black majority ruled south africa and zimbabwe things are much less stable and of course that kind of stability that you had in these apartheid regimes is, is an abusive stability it's nothing to be celebrated it comes from a climate of fear and repression so yeah Cowley has made some very reactionary arguments in his time, and my opinion of him is is uh, not positive, I'll say. And I, I also think that regarding what you were saying about how when he retired, maybe he would, you know, go to a kind of position on the spectator board or something. I think he has the politics where his politics are journalist. I think he could be at the spectator, he could be at the observer, the new statesman or whatever, and he'd fit in just fine. You know, the Nick Cohen business model where your politics are just in the right place where you can pitch to everyone. Um, well, yeah, exactly. But had he stuck to his guns or stuck to George Eaton, to the new politics, if it is indeed a new politics of the new statesman, but anyway, to this hmm. new wave of comment in the new statesman, I wonder whether that wasn't a threat that he felt, that he would have lost the chance of fitting as he had so far, of being part of this club. If he wouldn't be tainted or, you know, painted with the same brush as George has since, and a lot of us have. I mean, not that I've ever looked for a job at The Spectator, but I'm pretty sure that if I applied, I wouldn't get a job there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and then that's not just because I'm a foreigner. If anything, I fit very much within the sort of middle class, higher education, white person that they would hire. If anything, I would be brilliant for their quotas. But I'm pretty sure as soon as they saw my CV, they would immediately put it in the shredder. Even though I know that actually they hire in their internship scheme without names and without CVs. You have to fill in a form so that it's blind. It's a blind interview as if that was ever a thing. But Pure anyway. meritocracy, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Capitalism, it, it works. As if interviews and those forms weren't always organized in a way that the right answers are only known by the people who have attended certain schools and have spoken in a certain way and know, yeah. and know the way to that answer so <laughs> let's ignore that for a while but yes I mean for me above all and I didn't know about the piece about Africa for the Observer I must say but in this particular instance I was very disappointed that an editor and you know like I'm not even going to say that I expected that from the right because actually I think a lot of right-wing editors would have stuck to their staff yeah, absolutely. Jason like, if, not... if they got somebody sacked from a position in the Labour Party, they'd be all popping champagne at the fucking absolutely. spectator offices. They probably have a lot more champagne free to drink than uh, than than. <laughs> so, yeah. no, I I would drink the spectator champagne if they offered it to me. 
yeah, so that was really Jason Cowley's position was really disappointing. But again, like I think that the important thing here is to see how effectively this is being prolonged and being made into this big deal because it's really about what it signifies rather than what really happened. I, I, I suspect yeah. that nobody gives a shit whether Roger Scruton really got fired from a yeah. governmental job. He has other jobs. I'm sure he's not going to like you know lose his bread and butter because of that. What people really were concerned about is the fact that this symbolizes a shift of rhetoric in a publication that reaches out to members of the establishment and to a certain, you know, more influential demographic in in British society and how that was, as you say, a betrayal, but also inconceivable and needs to be punished. I mean, they wouldn't have been feeling the pressure otherwise, because to you or I, or indeed to most ordinary people who never heard of either Scruton or Eaton, it didn't feel like there was this massive backlash. I mean, I don't spend a massive amount of time reading the right-wing press or so on so so it never felt to me like you know if you just ignore that stuff then it doesn't really feel like there's this impetus to punish George and that's why however I mean, like, for us there's two strands right like there's a strand of like this is an example you're trying to set with George but also there's a strand of the consequences it had inside the new statesman and his structures and the way that Jason Kelly acted and what the, yeah. that says to us as the left media whatever absolutely I mean if your politics as I said earlier are basically journalist then you're going to consider a lot of people on the political right to be I don't your peers. Like this, I don't like this description as like, you know, your politics are journalists because if anything, that just says more about the bastardization of journalism in this country or indeed under neoliberalism. Journalism does not have to necessarily mean that you are completely political, completely unbiased, which effectively just means you go talk to the status quo when you fit in very mm. neatly with what's expected of you. I think it unfortunately has fallen within that cesspit but it shouldn't be and it hasn't always been that even though it's true that mainstream journalism one could argue has traditionally always ended up being the sort of channel of communication of whatever mainstream rhetoric there is and there's a long and proud history of dissent in journalism from both outside as well as inside mainstream publications oh yeah of course yeah but nonetheless i feel like the quality of journalism and critical thinking that we used to expect from journalists has been completely eradicated by which now unbiased journalism means uncritical journalism journalism that fits as you say within any kind of format sort of cookie cutter journalism Mm. and I, i think we have a responsibility to battle that idea to say no to reclaim journalism as sure a versatile multifaceted heterogeneous body but above all also a body that does have opinions and that does critique itself as well as the powers that are and I think that has been seriously undermined under neoliberalism so in the last 30 years or so. Yeah I mean what I think is an interesting bit in the Peter Wilby piece is he says that by describing Scruton's comments as outrageous it suggests that George Eaton approached the interview as a political activist not as a journalist and I think you know that speaks to me of this bad mode of Mm -hmm. journalism Mm -hmm. that's rampant in British politics where they kind of consider themselves to be in a glittering sphere above ideology yeah it can never touch them as if that wouldn't also be an ideology in and of itself it's a profound 
a critical position of ourselves as subject, you know, and if anything, it's the meaning. So it's basically telling the people who consider themselves the intelligentsia of this country, the great intellectuals, right, the journalists eventually have this arrogance of thinking of themselves as that, and then say, sorry, you're meant to be part of the intelligentsia, but then you don't see yourself in any way as having an opinion, or otherwise what they're saying is that their opinion is what matters, and all else is ideology, which effectively is what's happening. Yeah. Um, actually, again, to plug once again, Red Hacks, this is a conversation <laughs> I had in the first episode with Paul Mason, who's my first guest. At length, we discussed this problem of alleged apoliticism versus accusations of ideology that is particularly noticeable in public broadcasting, i.e. the editorial lines of the BBC in particular. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Everyone should give Red Hacks a listen. Thank and, you. And... Thank you. <laughs> so this Peter Wilby piece, which I keep going back to because because I think it sums up you were so, so much. Outraged. I saw, I think you tweeted something about it and you were proper angry at it. Yeah, I thought it just dripped with that establishment perspective. And, uh, yes, at this point, I am basically just recycling my tweets for the show. Who but... hasn't in their good days done that, eh? Yeah, absolutely. But basically, so we established earlier, the Scruton interview was published exactly a month to the day that we're recording this. This will be piece was published eight days ago. So basically, you're still fucking banging on about this thing that was like a storm in a teacup if you listen to a lot of right-wing voices. And this was his conclusion after pondering the whole thing. His conclusion was basically that the new statesman just like need to be nicer to conservatives it was um (laughs) he says it is not just for new statesmen that should learn from this episode journalists of all political in fact sorry he's saying that journalism in general has been too partisan and confrontational maybe but it always seems to be towards the left journalists of all political persuasions are too eager to claim scalps and to seek support on social media in doing so they are frequently encouraged by politicians of right and left and then he starts fucking quoting douglas murray Uh, for two successive paragraphs. I can't even be bothered to repeat the crap that Murray says. But it's just, uh, it's stuff about we need philosophers and politicians of courage and we shouldn't be hounding them with the online outrage machine, firing them before tea time, blah, blah, blah. Like I say, it drips with the establishment perspective for me, thinking that you should close this article by approvingly quoting a rampant Islamophobic bigot who's been gunning for one of your journalists publicly for several weeks and say i disagree with douglas murray on much but cannot agree and and then they've got just got a little kind of petty point and cannot resist pointing out that more discussion of complex matters is found in the new statesman than the spectator but i agree with every one of those words it's like that's a lot less fucking equivocal than their support for their own journalist Mm. yeah absolutely I mean, it's absolutely shocking. Do I sound really old if I say what happened to loyalty? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Solidarity. Well, yeah, oh, maybe yeah. if there was more of a left-wing culture at the New States, then they would have more solidarity for their own guy there, you know? But they're by no means anomalous in the British media and the liberal media specifically in this kind of treatment. I mean, as I think we may have alluded to it before, and I certainly did before we started recording, but there was a thing a few months back where Owen Jones did a series of tweets on the extent to which the 
British press had normalised racist views. So it's pretty clear what he was talking about. For example, Anders fucking Brevik quoting Melanie, mm. Melanie Phillips in his manifesto. Mm. But then a couple of days later, The Guardian had apparently forced Owen into posting some kind of apology slash clarification where he had to say basically, hashtag not all journalists. It just feels extraordinarily thin-skinned because it's like, yeah, obviously... Obviously not everyone's like that. The fact that a journalist is the one saying this stuff should possibly suggest that maybe he doesn't think it's in these completely blanket terms. But again, just like George Eaton self-evidently did a public service by getting Scruton fired, how the fuck was Owen in the wrong there? And it's the same when he came to blows with his colleagues over trans rights, which incidentally, the new statesman, I guess, with the increasing influence of George Eaton, I don't know if it's directly related, but they seem to have published a lot less transphobic stuff in the last few months. Uh, Another welcome change in direction. I think that's Um, solely because some of their writers of that (laughs) inclination are leaving the publication. Yeah, that, that may have something to do with it, admittedly. And finally, I mean, he's not one of their guys, like uh, Owen is for The Guardian, George is for New Statesman, he was a freelancer. But Richard Seymour recently wrote a piece in The Independent criticising The Independent Group and their own culture of racism, which was pretty clear with the multiple racism scandals they had when they announced their MEP candidates, uh, as well as the Angela Smith funny tinge racism scandal and so on. And, you know, the history of abhorrent racism on the political centre that has given birth to Cuckton. And that piece was just bizarrely pulled from publication after it had already been out for a few hours. Mm. I mean, that was absolutely, that was another one that I genuinely don't understand how that even happened. I would love actually, like, I don't have a lot of sources in that public. I mean, I know some people in there, but I haven't talked to them about what happened. Yeah. But they know what happened there. I have no idea. I must have a longer story. Did you ever speak to Richard about it by any chance? No, I mean, I don't know him personally. I I read his stuff, but, you know, we've never been mutuals on Twitter or anything. So I don't know the inside track, but from what he said on Twitter, from what he posted, he certainly seemed to be unhappy with it and feel like they'd pulled his piece. Well, Uh, he did because he tweeted about it and then published it on his own Patreon, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. And again, like, how was he the bad guy there like just how did that happen i would love to know how these decisions were come to because what owen has done with regards to racism or transphobia and criticizing the culture especially within the media on those things what george has done by getting scruton fired and what richard seymour did by criticizing a culture of endemic racism in the new centrist party whatever they're called you might think you know at the very least there is a space for these opinions. They shouldn't be people seeing these things and going, oh, fucking hell, you know, that's really out there. When it comes down to it, basically all three things come to a journalist, brought attention to some form of racism. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, again, it's because it opens a space where, well, where we want to get to, which is a culture in which this sort of comment and rhetoric is not acceptable. And clearly there is a large chunk of our media establishment that wants to continue having the freedom to say whatever the fuck they like without having to live with the consequences and being brought to account. And so rather than allow for, you know, for self-embetterment, I would suggest they'll rather punish those who make a comment on it, who actually highlight this bigoted rhetoric that has become so normalized. It's interesting as well that I think it was the new management of the Express has 
said that they will no longer, so the Express has been taken under new management and the new, I don't know if he's the editor, but he's definitely sort of like the owner, but the main person behind it has said that they will no longer publish anti-immigration pieces um, yeah. and that kind of drivel. And you haven't heard any kind of article about that whatsoever. Like, you know, anywhere else this would be a cause for celebration that a tabloid paper with a relatively substantial circulation in this country that was infamously known for spewing xenophobic pieces day in, day out, is now doing a complete U-turn. And instead of that being celebrated and commented upon, it goes unnoticed. Not because that's how it should always been, but just because I suspect people don't want to bring to the attention of the average reader that one of the main daily publications has decided to just embrace 2019, really. And I think if a lot of attention was brought to that, it would show up ostensibly more progressive papers. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't see the New Statesman under Jason Cowley vowing never to publish an anti-immigration piece ever again. I'm sure David Goodhart will turn up there uh, pretty soon with some kind of wanky think piece because people in the liberal press see it as their duty to represent more conservative opinions, you know, possibly opinions that they hold but project onto the working class. Uh, In a way, the, the conservative media really don't feel obliged to represent people on the left. Um, it's, I find it quite interesting that people like James O'Brien from LBC, who has come out as this white knight against xenophobia, hasn't waded into this conversation in defense of George Eaton. No, no, no. Because well, he makes you know. this very pertinent point that our media has become a sort of self-mimicking show of, of sort of minstrels, really. And yet when somebody inside the media goes against that grain and, and really does something to change that horrible average that we have in this country of just saying the most racist things on big publications and it's going unchallenged, then when somebody does indeed challenge it, James O'Brien doesn't make a whole episode about it on LBC. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, you know, maybe there's just more numbers in comparing the Corbyn movement to fascists or whatever. Well, stuff. possibly for out from LBC listeners, I, I would, I would have suspected as much. And I think, like, you know, Jesus Christ, they, like, you, I don't know. I just, I, I, again, the mind boggles. The mind boggles of how we've gotten to a point, a sort of a state of a conversation in which simply pointing out racism leads to a massive scandal in which people throw all their toys out of the pram and yeah. punish quite severely someone who did, as you say, a public service. Uh, yeah, like spot on. I mean, I'm just thinking about the fact that James O'Brien, to bring a, a I mean, I don't want to like pile it on James O'Brien. He's just a, <laughs> he's just an example of this sort of mentality yeah. at the end of the day. And again, like someone who was, you know, perfectly nice when I interviewed them. But having worked in fashion with some well-known people who I will now not name so that I don't get sued for real. <laughs> and these are people who are not necessarily in fashion. I just met through or, or who are known for other things than just being in fashion. But I met through those circles and who are supposed liberals or Cameroonians, i.e. new conservatives and whatnot. There are some people there who were genuinely displeasant. I don't know if that's because at that point I wasn't a journalist and people are a bit more respectful of journalists for the few things they can still do, like George proved the power that journalism <laughs> still has. Yeah. Whether that's because or that's because they were genuinely just cunts. Yeah. Uh, 
that. It's a shame uh, Mr. Eaton didn't have that same respect for former wine critics, isn't it? You think you you should really know his place, ultimately. But just to go back on on the question of James O'Brien, I mean, like, you know, he works for the LBC. Katie Hopkins used to have a show on the LBC. Nigel Farage has a a show on LBC. I know that James O'Brien has interviewed Farage on at least one occasion that became quite infamous. But when I've worked, you know, I've worked for Russia Today, I think a lot of people know about that. And when Katie Hopkins and Nigel Farage actually walked in and passed by my desk, I was the person coughing scum (laughs) loud. So this is the way I reacted to it. And in fact, to some degree, I mean, I I left Russia Today because I was offered a different job and because I needed to get another job offered or else I wouldn't have had a salary to pay my bills. Mm. So I was very lucky. But the reason I got that job offer was because I had been for a long time saying how to several people, including the person who hired me, that I was miserable at RT because I didn't like the political direction it had at that point anyway in terms of the legitimizing of Russian positions. But Mm. it was going into a sphere of pure populism of having Nigel Farage doing a few shows and Hopkins doing a pilot or or two, whatever it was that she did over there. And in that sense, you know, I kind of felt like, uh, you know, it's not even on top of that. And I've talked about this in other interviews in, in other podcasts, actually, the fact that I felt that I wasn't being given the freedom, which I think also says something about the media. And again, echoes with what's happening with George. I thought I went in there and yeah, I would have to turn a blind eye to all this Putin propaganda as people branded. But at the same time, I would be given a certain freedom to cover issues that interest me that would be effectively quite critical of of austerity and critical of xenophobia and so on and so forth. And in the end, it turned out that I had to do this in my own time or rather I could do those, but they had to be done in my own time Mm. because all the other time I had to focus on the more polemicist or polemic spreading mr seamus milne's latest lines that he sent to you all god not even i never i was never in touch with seamus milne i, I wish <laughs> a good person to quote you know or at least to you know quote as a labor insider the spokesman for the leader of the opposition mr seamus milne yeah. <laughs> no, I've never had a direct line to. I don't have James Mills, uh, 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 James Mills, Seamus Mills number on my on my phone. I have, a, I have in a, the WhatsApp group. No, I'm not in any WhatsApp group with James Mills. I'm afraid. Oh, we're all uh, in the WhatsApp group, like I me, say, fucking Lenin Lover sixty nine. I have to say, <laughs> even when I was at the Morning Star, people did have his number, namely obviously the editor, but only the editor ever got to chat to Seamus Mills and. Uh, even then, he was very difficult to get a quote from. So, so I'm afraid that it, it never, even even to the daily newspaper of the Communist Party of Britain, Seamus Milne was not most helpful at times. You know, when, when, when you're running against deadlines and all that, I remember, you know, at some point he would, when he was really, I think he, he did give a quote or, or, or a comment or at least some sort of consultancy. Because he's a man of mystery. You know, he's he's an enigma, mercurial, always in the shadows. I feel like I've met more right-wing xenophobes now than I've met the sort of Politburo of of, of the Labour Party because I've <laughs> never I've never met Seamus Milne. I was never was never in any kind of proximity. I'm sure I've spotted him at some point at labor conferences somewhere in the audience, but I was never at close range, nor have I ever exchanged any words with Seamus Milne. Um, to my Fake news. That I must admit that I never got to chat to Seamus Mill. Oh, 
Well, I mean, should we wrap up then? Yeah, by, sorry. By like, it's possibly... like 10 p.m. It's like two hours. Jesus Christ, you have a lot That's of That's all right. So, like, yeah, should we offer a, a message of solidarity to uh, Mr. Seamus Milne's future successor? The man who we're sure only a matter of time before he's running for slick Corbyn machine, Mr. George Eaton. <laughs> Absolutely. I And now on a serious note here, if I'm the token serious person that comes on Real Politics, <laughs> I, I do stand shoulder to shoulder with George Eaton. He has proven to be, for many reasons, and certainly with this interview, an extraordinary journalist, always willing to debate his opinions and to be brought to account, which says more about him than a lot of other journalists in our country at the moment. And yeah, absolutely. All power to him, regardless of what happens. I just think that, again, I put out the call out, the cry out to all the red hacks out there to assemble. DM me uh, <laughs> right now on an anonymously or not. Your identities shall be kept in safety, in my own safety. How do I put this? Wait, I want to make this something worth editing. Okay, so let's do this. Again. <laughs> and also, I put out an appeal to all the red hacks out there to DM me on Twitter, email me, whatever, if you want to start organizing so that if they come for us, we're prepared and we'll eat them alive and show that free speech is actually a thing in this country and that therefore that there is space for both the misogyny and racism of Roger Scruton as well as the progressive solidarity of journalists like George Eaton, the guys at RealPolitik and hopefully myself. We are journalists. You hear that, folks? RealPolitik is a journalistic exercise. There you go confirmed well thanks joanna that's a brilliant closing message i think it sums up what we've been trying to say today so thanks for joining us on real politic again thanks and, so much yeah and thank you to everybody who's listened to me and joanna hash out the major issues of the day and once again solidarity with my friend red george brilliant that's awesome <laughs>